Okay, welcome to the Refugee Portal podcast. Uh, we have our guest, Jeffrey Heller, and uh, he's been a pro bono lawyer uh, helping refugees in the United States uh, uh, come under dire circumstances and having a friend and a lawyer to help them uh, during a very difficult part of their journey. So it's a great honor to have you here, Jeffrey. And uh, just for the audience, if you could maybe do a, a, a just a, a a bit of your background, and uh, and then we can get started with some questions. Well, it's my honor to be with you, and what you said is very kind. I can't start uh, without mentioning my wife Nancy, who supports my crazy adventures, bankrolls me, is patient with me, and does without me when I'm gone weeks at a time. I grew up in an area near the Canadian border in New York State, a rural area. And my family happens to be Jewish. My grandparents happen to have been refugees. I was in a class of 170 at my high school, which took in people from a, a wide area. And I was the only Jewish person. So I knew what it was like to be considered a little bit odd, not exactly to fit in. And maybe that's one of the reasons that I've always had a sympathy for the outsider, being one myself a little bit. And uh, when I started my career in corporate law in New York City, I had debts to pay. Uh, Nancy was in business school and there was expense involved with that. And I forgot why I'd gone to law school, which was to save the world. Then came the opportunity to represent a Haitian boat person. This is in the early 1980s. And uh, I took the opportunity to take a pro bono case the leaders at the law firm at which I worked said that that was a good way for us to get experience. And when I took that case, the light went back on again. And I said, this is why I went to law school to do things like that. And since then I've represented hundreds of people and won asylum for hundreds um, and felt that that was my calling. And Nancy made it possible for me to follow that calling. And what's amazing, uh, Jeffrey, is that that usually when people go into law, that there's uh, obviously the cachet, the respect, the 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 opportunity to earn uh, a much larger income than than the average person, and uh, and to make a decision early on that what what touched your heart again, like your childhood experiences, uh, feeling uh, different from the other classmates, and then understanding that people don't necessarily understand the refugee uh, journey. And, and to be able to be in a very important position to help them as, as a lawyer, a human rights lawyer, to really defend their rights. I, I think that's a very powerful distinction. And maybe you could speak for yourself that that, that spark in, in the early 80s of, of, of being a champion with your skill set to help meaningfully refugees. Well, it, it made me feel as if I belonged. So a lot of it was selfish. But when I had my suit and tie on and was in the courtroom, I felt like an outsider, a bit of a stranger. I grew up in the sticks and here I was in New York City. Um, I felt like I belonged because to my client, I was the, the, like the great white hope or something, you know? They felt that I was part of the establishment. They looked at me as like I was just American instead of, the way I felt, which was being a little bit off to the side. So uh, to them, I was, I was the American dream. And what you said at the very beginning about people needing a friend, I think that's a lot of it. 
I always felt that these people felt misunderstood. No one's listening. No one cares. And I cared for them. It wasn't just a, a legal experience. It was also a personal one. Uh, one of my daughters, I have a daughter who's a teacher, uh, a daughter who's a social worker, and a son who works on police reform. Uh, they're all wonderful kids. My social worker daughter talks to me about boundaries. But I felt I really couldn't have boundaries when somebody really needed something. They needed a friend as well as a lawyer. So I try, I kept it professional, but if they couldn't pay their rent or if they needed a roof over their head or once they were established here, if the kid couldn't afford to go to summer camp, I saw to it that they had the things that they needed. One of my um, relatively early cases involved a guy who deserted from the Iranian army under horrible circumstances. And um, when I finally got him out of jail after 19 months, he had nowhere to go. So we took him in. And he was so relieved because people had told him things uh, in immigration jail about, oh, this lawyer's a Jew, I, I have to mention. And he hadn't known what to think. And when he got out and I brought him home and I assured him, I said, we don't use any pork in my house. He was so relieved. You know, Halal and Kashrut are from the same family. We're brothers and sisters. And he, he just felt at home. He felt at home with my kids. And it was a relief to him. He'd been in jail for 19 months. He was deported from the United States in violation of a federal court order that I'd gotten. They put him on an airplane to send it back to Iran. And I took his collect call from the airport. It happened to be a holiday for me. But I take collect calls because I'm a marshmallow. And... He said, I'm at the airport. I said, why are you at the airport? I have a court order. He said, I showed them the order. They told me it doesn't matter. They're putting me on a plane. And he was headed back to Iran to be shot. But he had to change planes in Europe. And I, it took me all night. But I finally found out what his route was, contacted United Nations officials in, uh, in Geneva and told them the plane was going to land in Paris, then Zurich. He'd have to change in one of them. And they sent people to Paris and Zurich and they rescued him in Zurich, took him away from the Swiss and sent him back to the US and back to jail for months. But this experience showed him that, that we are all brothers and it let me feel like I was the establishment and I could be both his lawyer and his friend. Later, he invited me to his wedding. He moved to Kansas and I got to go to his wedding. And that for me was a real honor. And, and, and what you're doing is a matter of life and death really the stakes are that high a matter of life and death to really be that that point that that uh, that crux to to help somebody uh that could again get shot or or, or get killed or or persecuted and and being able to to meaningfully protect them and and so i will say you know part of faith like even judaism christianity islam shares that that uh, that belief to take care of the neighbor, to take care of the traveler, to take care of the dispossessed, and and even going back to Moses, uh, in, in Arabic Musa al Islam is, is what we call him. And the Quran, uh, majority of the stories uh, in the Quran, if there's one prophet reference more than others, it's him, and his challenges uh, with his exodus, and and having to leave, and and really being at the mercy of God is 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 a great lesson for all of us, and. Now, getting back to like, even because since the early eighties and now uh, the refugee crises are, are, are intensifying. 
um, in the 70s, Vietnam, Cambodia, in the 80s, there's uh, Central, Central America, Cuba, and, and now we're starting to see with the Syrian refugee crisis, what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in, 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 in all parts of the globe. It, and you started in the 1980s. What have you seen based on, on, on your understanding from what's happening in the 80s, the attitudes in the United States? Because the United States at the moment is kind of like, uh, uh, obviously, the global superpower and whatever happens in the U.S. attitudes in the U.S. affect the rest of the world. And um, this perception that refugees are a drain on society, uh, that refugees are rushing to get in, where you mentioned earlier, it's a matter of life and death. The, the refugees are in fences, and if they're not uh, given asylum, they will likely perish and die with their families. So let's talk about that and the attitudes, I know there's a, a number of questions here, but the attitudes in the US uh, regarding refugees, and then and then the segue can be into a ride for humanity and how you've been able to connect with people that, that may have a negative view of refugees and giving them another viewpoint. It's a complicated question. Uh, the Refugee Act of 1980 had been passed in 1980, uh, only three years before I took my first case. So the system was quite new then. And the immigration judges had been called special inquiry officers before that. And the system had been rigged toward getting rid of people. At the beginning, it was terrible. I won my, that first case for a Haitian. It was the second uh, Haitian client out of 500 in New York City to be granted asylum. And I saw the way the system was rigged that the the judges didn't want to hear, they weren't paying attention, the prosecutors wanted to get, they wanted to notch a win. Uh, American law, and I presume Canadian as well, holds that uh, the duty of a lawyer, especially a government lawyer, is to see that justice is done, not to win or lose. But that attitude had not penetrated in the immigration system. I have here uh, next to me, Joey, the kangaroo court puppet. Joey uh, made a video with me in 1991 for Human Rights First, and since then has been my companion on my rides around the country, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but the, the court seemed rigged at the beginning, but then there was an improvement. Gradually, you saw some of the older judges retiring, and some of the newer ones had more experience in uh, human rights. Uh, they had... Uh, broader experience in life, I think. They were more open and it became easier to get asylum in this country. You know, to get asylum uh, in America, you first have to get yourself here, which is another complication because of all the, the COVID related lockdowns and also the, the bigotry of the administration that we suffered through for four years. It got more and more difficult for people to get here, to come to the border or enter the country and exercise their right to ask for refuge. Um, but for a while, for years, it wasn't so bad. And you mentioned different hotspots in the world. I saw this in my practice. For a time, all my clients were from Iran, or they were all from Liberia, many from Mauritania, from, some from Romania. It just depended where things were bad. That's where the people were coming from. And you only get to see the lucky few who have the resources, the luck, the, the intelligence, whatever, to be able to get themselves out of their country and come here. And I, I began to teach in 1992 at Brooklyn Law School, and I also taught at Seton Hall Law School in Newark, New Jersey, across the river. 
And I, I began clinics or continued a clinic that was at Seton Hall to teach students how to represent refugees, people seeking asylum because of a well-founded fear of persecution abroad. And I, I found many judges to be more sympathetic. And I saw there was a gradual, you know, it was up and down, but the gradual ten was, trend was more positive toward being able to get people the, the uh, protection in this country that they deserved. That began to spiral downward as soon as Mr. Trump was elected, even before that. I think he stirred up a lot of hatred, uh, spread a lot of stories. When he first declared his candidacy, he insulted Mexicans, talking about how awful they are. I don't know if it's true in Canada. I would not be surprised if it is true. In the United States, immigrants, including refugees, but even people who sneak across the border to pick fruit, have a lower crime rate, a lower disease rate, and a higher labor force participation rate than people born in America. They're better Americans than the Americans. And the lies that were spread started to change people's attitudes. In 2011, I began my annual Ride for Human Rights. I had a daughter, my social worker daughter, was graduating from Grinnell College in Iowa. And I thought, how about if I bicycle there instead of, it's about 2,000 kilometers, um, bicycle there instead of fly. And I thought, I don't want to bicycle for nothing. So I called up Human Rights first. I said, how would you like me to raise some money and consciousness for you? And they said, sure. I said, it won't cost you a dime. And I began my, my trip to Iowa. And along the way, I talked to people about refugee and asylum issues. And I so enjoyed it and was so reassured by what I encountered that I continued doing it. And I've done it every year since. I've uh, actually biked to Seattle in stages from New York. Um, it was New York to Chicago, Chicago to Albuquerque the next year, Albuquerque to San Jose, and then San Jose, California to Seattle. I could only spare about three weeks at a time, so I didn't do it all at once. And along the way, I talked to people. And most people, at least before Mr. Trump, didn't have a, a sense of what refugees were about, asylum issues. They didn't know about it. And many, many of them were very sympathetic almost everybody, when I would explain to them that people had the legal right to ask for protection, that the Bible and the Torah and the Quran all say you have to protect the stranger. And when they would say things to me like, well, we should take care of our military veterans first, I'd say, we can take care of both. It's not an either or. We're plenty rich, we're plenty comfortable. And the people who come don't want a handout. They wanna live a life, contribute to the community, be part of a community where they're safe, raise their families, just like everyone else. There was a, a woman in the middle of the country, a farm woman who was saying something to me about, uh, about her fear of Syrians or Muslims, I don't remember exactly. And with the permission of one of my clients, I've had Syrian, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim clients who all got asylum. I, with the permission of this client, I said, would you mind if I showed you a photo? And I showed her, showed her a photo of this very nice young woman who happens not to wear hijab, which is you know, neither here nor there, but she dressed like a Western person. She had her two lovely children with her. I said, this is someone who fled Syria. This is a Syrian Muslim. And the woman in the American woman's reaction was, she's a young mother. I said, exactly, she's a young mother. She's running from the people that we're all afraid of. And this is, this is a refugee. 
this is what they are. And I could see that a light went on and that she understood. Now, if she went home and watched certain cable news programs afterward, I can't guarantee that it stuck. But I felt that I changed a mind there. And I've been able to do that all over the country with people who are kind and, and welcoming. Uh, and you know, the group that has been most kind and welcoming has been the First Nations, the people mislabeled Native Americans here. I'm a Native American. I happen to be have been born here, but I'm not a member of a First Nation. There was a gentleman in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan who was from the Algonquin Nation, who when I talked to him about refugees, he was a little cagey, he told me his father, he said, never liked white people. He said, he, never, he said, I don't understand their ways. And he told me that the Algonquins had benefited because they were nearer the lake and got arms first from the French and were able to dominate their, their neighbors. But everyone else I met, they, many of them were already involved in helping refugees. And there was a Navajo Nation woman in New Mexico who memorably told me, she said, my people have a lot of land, but we don't really have the land. The land is going to be here when my nation is gone. The land is forever. And I don't have the right to tell anyone that they can't come to land and make a life for themselves. Maybe not in her house, but as her neighbor. And that was the attitude that I, that I encountered. And I asked her, did anyone ever ask you who should be allowed in this country? And she said, well, no, no one ever asked me. And this was when Mr. Trump was running for the nomination. And she said, you know, there's this guy with European background who wants to say who should come here. And I, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it either. And, and those parallels, like uh, in, in World War II, uh, demonizing groups, and in the case of uh, Nazi Germany, demonizing uh, in particular the, the Jewish community, and, and by, by catering to the base uh, of, of people that just want someone to blame. And so this is a tactic far-right governments do, is, is, is whether it's Jewish people, Muslim people, uh, black people, First Nations people, assign blame and 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 mobilize uh, the mob uh, to focus on that rather than 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 what's really at hand. And so, in 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 what happened in in World War II, the refugee crisis, where many refugees came uh, that were of Jewish origin to the United States, but the net gain to the United States was, um, I think, the statistics: fifty percent of patents. Uh, new patents were were new new newly arrived refugees and immigrants uh, that were predominantly of Jewish origin from the United States. A lot of technological uh, underpinnings that we use today uh, from from that mindshare of refugees that were given asylum and and brought to the United States. And then the other statistics is the the the, the refugees are more likely to start businesses and employ people and add to the economy. So these are things from our history. Uh, when refugees are allowed in, uh, there is a net gain to, to society, especially from, from World War II and, and even uh, modern day, uh, Steve Jobs' father, I believe, was, was in, an, an immigrant from, from Syria. So many, many benefits to society by welping, welcoming those that want to come. And as you said, they don't want to hand out. So please talk about the psychology of, of the, the refugees that you meet and when they arrive and once they get settled and kind of some examples that you've seen of how people are able, once given a chance, are able to turn their lives around and, and provide benefit for themselves, their families and for everybody else. 
Well, uh, I'm thinking now of uh, some Syrian families. Uh, one, they started a fantastic restaurant in New York City. Uh, there's another one where the, the children volunteer everywhere and so does the mother in hospitals to just to go talk to people. That's one of the things that the mother does. She says that people in the hospital who are just lonely and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, but I can talk to them. And, and she brings blessings to them that way. I have uh, had a Liberian client whose son joined the Marines for better or worse. Um, another, uh, some Afghanis who started restaurants, chicken and pizza restaurants. Uh, the daughters all went to professional school. One became a doctor. Uh, someone from uh, Pakistan, the child won some phantom stock investment contest for middle school kids and got to meet Bill Clinton. Wow. Today. You know, they're all, uh, there's an Ethiopian family where two of them are bankers. One is an author, one is a doctor. They're just all, they're fantastic people. As I said, it's often the best and the brightest and the luckiest who are able to get away. And people who come here, refugees and asylees are entitled to some benefits. But I've had clients who refuse them. There was someone who came from what is now Belarus, who said welfare is poison. He only wanted to work, and that's typical. But they're like they're like most people don't want to hand out. They want to feel productive. They're like you know they're our neighbors. They're our brothers and sisters. They're our friends. Um, and and the the benefits that you mentioned, which could have been even greater to the U.S. if we had let in not kept out so many refugees. And there's a book about, written about Canada's attitude, uh, none is too many, or one is too many, I forget which is the title. The, the Canadian uh, academicians were so afraid of professors coming from Germany and Austria would take their jobs. Canada shut the door. Uh, it was, it was uh, shameful. You're more generous than we are now, but back in the day you were as ungenerous as we were. Um, those are, those are practical reasons to let people in. What I am concerned about is all the people who claim to be religious or observant or believe in the Bible or the Quran or the Torah, and yet they find excuses to turn away the stranger. If you want to say, I don't want strangers, I don't want people with different cultures who don't look like me or whatever, if you want to say those things and say, I want to bar the door, Fine, I'll disagree with you, but I will respect your honesty. When you say, if you go to church or mosque or synagogue and pray fervently, and then turn around and say, I don't want to let these people in. And you know, we're not just letting them in. If you want asylum in the United States, or if you want to be recognized as a refugee abroad, that's like pre-asylum, where you're cleared and then you just come and you're, you have status when you arrive, you have to prove your case. It's not just handed to people. They have to prove the burden is on them to prove it and to and everyone's entitled to a hearing and if you won't give them a hearing and you say i don't want syrians to come for example when they're fleeing it's horrible things i don't even want to hear about it and yet you go to pray somewhere what are you and what you know what does this mean about us uh, you know people say that's not us but if, if that's what we do that is us and i don't like that us and, and as your role, uh, because as you said, 
when people need help, they're looking for meaningful help, not a handout. And yourself, like a, like a shepherd, in a way, a shepherd knows a path, knows how to take the flock, knows the strategies where to not fall into the river or whatever the case may be. So as, as a human rights lawyer, and to be able to, to provide those strategies and tools and, uh, and meaningful help, that, that is really, in essence, who the refugees need that have the good fortune of connecting with somebody like yourself who can help navigate the pitfalls and the, the prejudices. And what, what, what I like about your journey is not only are you helping the refugees, but you're also trying to change the hearts and minds. And what was the, the inspiration behind uh, your ride for humanity. What 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 kind of you talked about? You're going to to see your daughter in Iowa and Grinnell University, but you you saw a need that the general public has this this perception, a negative perception because of uh, right wing politicians, but the, a general negative perception. And to win hearts and minds one heart at a time, it, it, there's a, a Yiddish term shutzba, and and shutzba is like I I I, I won't do justice to the the definition of it but be doing something above and beyond above and beyond and maybe you can define it better than than i can but it takes a lot of heart to do something like that to ride and meet strangers and try and change hearts and minds well as you may as you may have gathered from our conversation here i talk easily you push the button and the words come out so it's nice to have an audience um i feel guilty all the time I think that may be part of the human condition. I feel like I'm responsible for things that objectively I'm not responsible for. And I like to talk and I like to feel, even though it's always an illusion, I like to feel that I am self-sufficient. So when you're on a bicycle, you can pretend, even though other people built the road and grew the food that you ate and don't run you over because they, you hope they're awake when they're driving or whatever. You're depending on people every moment, but you can pretend for a little while that you're, you're independent. And I'm also, I'm very lucky. Uh, and lucky in my ability to carry this off because I was born in America. I have a pale complexion, so people, racist people don't find me threatening. I live in New York City, which makes me exotic. Some people are, how could you live there? And others are, oh my God, <laughs> you know, can I touch you? Uh, they, they view it as the, like the holy city. Um, but I don't sound like I'm from there because I grew up in the hinterlands. My grandfather, uh, all four of my grandparents are refugees. One of my grandfathers, the one who found his way up to the border of Canada was uh, a farmer. So I have farming in the family and small town, and I can connect with people in all kinds of ways that somebody who looked different, sounded different, uh, could be labeled as a New York City person or whatever, might not be so successful. And I'm also enough of a dinosaur, you know, it'll date me, but Antonin Scalia was my constitutional law and contracts professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Wow, well, and he's very much. The Supreme Court judge now. Yeah, well, I'm dead now, but he died but a few years ago. Yeah, that's right, but yeah, you know, that dates me. This is before yeah. he was ever on the bench. Yes. In, the, in the 70s, I graduated law school not much after the 70s, in fact, very little after. Um, I still believe that the way the system is supposed to work in parliamentary democracies like yours and ours is that power is supposed to come from the people. And we won't get reform 
until the people demand it. Even in, th in this country, when the people demand it because of our crazy system with the Electoral College and the Senate and all that, we have the people wanting things like firearms reform and um, better childcare and national health insurance and all sorts of things that the people want that the powers that be prevent them from having. But in an ideal world, it's when the people want something that it's going to happen. And I keep hoping that I'll meet somebody because I've, I've talked to thousands of people on these rides, which is not that big a deal because I've been on the road more than seven months altogether doing wow. it. If you talk to 10 people a day, it adds up into thousands. But I'm, I'm always hoping that I'll meet someone who's going to, a kid who's going to grow up or someone who's going to tell his relative and that there'll be a big change. I met a state police officer on the highway in Arizona who turned out to be former Senator, Republican Senator Jeff Flake's brother-in-law. Wow. Flake is no longer, because he yeah. was a Trumpist. Yeah. Uh, I met uh, in Selma, Alabama, I met uh, a reverend who is now retired, who had been the Selma coordinator for Martin Luther King wow. back in 1965. I met diplomats. I've met professors, I've met local politicians, newspaper people. I met a journalist on Route 66 when I was in Missouri, a German journalist who was writing a book about Route 66. I ended up on the cutting room floor, but we stayed in touch. He worked for big newspapers and I keep hoping to get the voice of someone who's going to make a big difference. And the hope is still there because even during the last administration, when the body politic had been so poisoned and there was so much hate around. When I meet people, and I ride recumbent bicycles, so I'm a little exotic, and I always wear clothes with buttons, shirts with collars. I don't dress in spandex, I don't have the body for it, but I also think that I'm a cycling ambassador, that riding a bicycle doesn't mean you have to dress like a nut. I, can dress, I used to go to court wearing my suit on a bicycle, so I dress that way, so I'm a conversation piece. In some of these places, they haven't seen anything so interesting in a decade as me rolling in with my bike and the kangaroo court puppet. Um, and I'm able to connect with them. And even with the poisoning of the body politic, I still found people overwhelmingly sympathetic. And when a guy in Alabama said to me, well, I spent time in the county jail where I talked on the phone on a video screen with uh, some of the immigrants they put there because local jails in America will rent out their jail cells to the federal government. They make a lot of money off it. And they don't have to do anything for the prisoners because they're, they're civil prisoners, they're not criminals. So they don't have to get any rehabilitation or services. You just shove food at them, a little bit of bad food and put them in a jumpsuit and keep them behind bars and everybody's happy at the county level. But this guy was talking to me, he carries a gun all the time and he, he ran a pawn shop and, but we could still connect. You know, I said, I understand you don't want someone coming into your yard, but someone wants to move to this town. Uh, Gadsden was the name of the town. And, you know, and make a life here. You know, you get, you get them talking and they're good people. They have good hearts. They just don't understand the refugee and asylum system. They don't know what they're dealing with. And when I explain it to them gently and I listen to them and I engage them, I don't make it one-sided. Acknowledge their fears and I explain what's going on then I make a connection. And I think, again, until they go home and watch cable TV news, that we're on the same page. And I find that rewarding and reassuring. Every year before I go on the road, I'm a little afraid. 
when, when I biked through the deep south, when I went through uh, the Texas panhandle, when I was in parts of Northern California and Oregon, where everyone was pale like me. I felt like I was in a science fiction movie. Is everybody cloned? Because I'm used to the wonderful, I won't call it a melting pot in New York City, but the stew of all colors and shapes and garb and sizes and languages. And everybody, we're all minorities here, all of us. So everybody, more or less, you hear things in the news, whatever, but more or less, we all get along. And I'm in these places where I just feel like, does no one notice that we're all so much the same? And isn't it weird? Um, but I can get along in any of these environments. And, uh, and it reassures me that people are still good out there, that despite, despite it all, they're still good and they mean well. It's just, they, you know, we all want to do the right thing. Sometimes we tell ourselves stories to convince ourselves we're doing the right thing but we all want to do it. And sometimes we just don't know what that is. I try to help them see from my point of view, what one of those good things might be. And by taking the first step, you know, the, the one who puts his hand out and says hello and to shake hands and the one who's not uh, reticent and stepping back and uh, but to, 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 to take that first step is an act of courage uh, because to make change is one hearted at a time. And when you meet the people, how do you bring up the, 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 the subject of, of refugees and the subject of, of, of immigration? How does that come up? Is that in the context they ask you, hey, interesting bike and interesting uh, that kangaroo? Sort of thing. And, and I have a sign on the front and rear of the bike that yeah. will say, uh, ride for human rights. Uh, lately, uh, the sign is said from New York City to the lower 48 states. Yeah. Because trying to reach up to 39 states yeah trying to reach all 48 minnesota will likely be the last one i've reached seattle i'm doubling back toward the east now yeah. um, so that's a way to engage them in conversation or they say are you really from new york and i say indeed i am and did you come all this way i said i did every foot of every inch i came the whole way so we get to talking that way sometimes it's just the signs i get people the occasional person yelling a curse or blasting a horn but that's one in a hundred, maybe wow. one in 500. More of them will give me a thumbs, thumbs up or a nice toot. And people in Ohio, North Carolina, Michigan, California, all over the place, they will flag me down. Missouri, a couple of scary looking guys passed me and stopped. And then they were waving out the window. They said, we don't want to scare you. I was a little scared. And they said, we saw your sign and we, you know, we want to give you money. We don't know what it's about, but if it's important enough for you to come all the way from New York, then, uh, then it must be something important. And we had the nicest talk. And it turned out that one of the men said that he was from one of the uh, First Nations in the area, that part of Missouri. And he said to me, anyone with a good heart is welcome in the Ozarks. Wow. And I was touched and moved to hear that and and that 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 uh, is an act of courage that journey and i think people recognize that that uh this man has has a purpose he has a mission uh other than you know the the family business or personal there's there's a recreational this is a, a personal mission that you're on and i think people can recognize that because a lot of folks they want something to believe in 
And now what's amazing is not only do they want to talk to you, but they also want to contribute and they want to financially uh, give to the good work. And, and, how, and I've seen like 30,000, 35,000. So a significant amount of, of money is, 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 is just good hearted people that, that want to help the good work. How does that come together and how do you utilize those funds? Well, uh, a lot of that is uh, much of the money comes from a few people who are very generous. You know, that's usually the way it is. But, but I take any amount um, and it all goes, uh, I work with human rights first as a volunteer. We need, my wife really, Nancy mostly, pays the bills for all the trips. I don't camp, I stay in motels because when I'm on the road, every night without fail, I post an illustrated essay on my blog. Every night, I haven't missed a night. Um, so I need a place with electricity. I also happen to like running water at bed in a shower. Room, you know? Yes, I'm a, a wimp that way. Um, so all the money goes to human rights first and uh, people have given me $2 and people have given in the thousands. I mean, I met a guy once in a TSA line, a, a security line at an airport. It was between rides. And we got to talking about, that. I don't know what, he had a box that he said it had Jaguar parts in it. And I said, like, from an animal? No, it was car parts. Uh, we talked a bit. And then that night, I got a message. He had donated $1,000 to the, to the ride. You, you run into people like that. But others, like, $2 is fine. And everyone who donates gets a, uh, a postcard signed by me and by Joey, I carved a, an eraser into a rubber stamp like a red kangaroo's paw print, uh, uh, a postcard from New York City or sometimes from somewhere else. In the last few years, they've been Beatles postcards because my late cousin, Joel, who lived in Wilmington, Delaware, and was a Beatles fanatic, had a box of Beatles postcards. And Joel traveled the world and loved the world. And I'm sending his postcards out to the world. Wherever people make a donation, they get an autographed Beatles postcard. Some of them, no doubt, collector's items. If you make a donation and you tell me your favorite beetle, I'll send you one too. Fantastic. And and when 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 what, what, are... that's what the money goes for, by the way, uh, human rights first. Uh, I got involved with them first because they uh, they started to send me cases in the early '80s of people who couldn't afford a lawyer, who had uh, asylum cases, a colorable case. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to win, but they, they sent me for several years to one of the immigration jails in New York City to do screening. And I would interview people and some of them had come for work or they were from Sweden or whatever, and it wasn't an issue, but people who had a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, and told me enough to convince me there was something there, they, I would report them to Human Rights First, they would find a volunteer lawyer. They also do a lot of work uh, trying to change the politics in this country, not as a political organization, but to change the, the outlook of the politicians. They have an affiliate called um, Veterans for American Ideals. They're retired military personnel who don't want there to be torture, who want us to protect human rights, who want us to live up to our ideals. They also work with international organizations to try to, uh, to uh, remedy the problems that send people seeking refuge in the US and in Canada and other, other free countries, safe countries. Because the people I've represented, 
I had a Chinese client once uh, at the end of a very long hearing, the government prosecutor asked him, do you want asylum? And he said, no. And the government lawyer said, he just said he doesn't want asylum for the judge. I had the foresight to bring with me someone who was fluent in his dialect of Chinese language. And my friend nudged me. I said, what's going on? And she got permission from the judge to speak and said, he's not saying that he doesn't want asylum. He's saying he wishes he didn't have to have asylum, that he misses his country, that he wants to go home, but he can't go home. The judge adjourned for lunch and came back and granted everything. The judge got it. Um, and, and, and veterans for uh, American ideals, like even now with, it uh, looks like Afghanistan, the, the, the longest war in, in US history over 20 years now. Um, and there were uh, people in Afghanistan that worked with the, the, the government and, and just in terms of however it was, but the perception from uh, the Taliban and others there. Um, and so these folks' lives are in danger, just like folks in Syria, folks in, in, in Iraq, and, and, and part, of, part of the work for uh, veterans uh, for American ideals um, to, to protect people from, 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 uh, from being killed, their families being killed in, in, in retaliation or whatever the case may be. But let, let's talk about that because it is life and death because people can die because of you know, the mob. It, it's a serious problem, and it's, it's really outrageous the way it has unfolded. Uh, every time the U.S. has been involved in a foreign conflict, and there have been far too many in my view, some necessary, many, many, many not, we've been helped by local people. That's what happens. The bad guys, when they invade, are helped by local people too. The Soviets, when they invaded Afghanistan, surely they had collaborators and helpers. Ours aren't collaborators. Ours are just helpers. Uh, and then we abandoned them. We took in a lot of people after the Vietnam War, but not enough, but it was in the hundreds of thousands. Um, I got asylum for someone from Iraq who had helped the American military, who was here in graduate school. And that's how he was able to get here before all the shutdowns. Otherwise I couldn't have helped him. And he wouldn't have qualified for one of the special visas that our Congress set aside for people who had helped us in Iraq and Afghanistan because he had worked for the American army for less than one full year. There are limits and restrictions on some of these things. Now, as he explained it to me, he said, if you were standing in line to get a job as a janitor for some other business in a building in which the Americans were also interviewing for people to help them, he said, these guys have cell phones, they take pictures, they know who you are. And they'll kill you and they will let the Almighty sort them out. Wow. He said, the fact that I worked for fewer than 12 months, they don't say, oh, well, then he wasn't, a, he wasn't our enemy, that he had a price on his head too. And I got him asylum. The special immigrant visa program is not broad enough. There were caps and quotas, and we've been really slow about it. A few years ago, a national public radio story. Uh, was broadcast about someone they called Omar. That was a pseudonym. He had worked for the Americans for a long time. He, people said he saved their lives. Americans said this accolades from all over the place. And he was, his paperwork was, was delayed. And they asked him the same things a hundred times and they wouldn't deal with him and they wouldn't deal with him. The Americans, it was in process, in process until he was murdered. We gave refuge to his widow and his orphan. 
So it should not be. We should do what someone told me the Polish government did this. I haven't confirmed it, but I was told that they said we're leaving in a few days. If you want to come, there's a seat for you on the airplane. We'll sort out your paperwork once we get to Poland. But you can come with us. We make it so hard. People go into hiding and many of them have been murdered while waiting for us to protect them. And these people aren't asking for something they gave to us. I don't know if the Canadians had similar helpers. They must have to the extent they were over in these countries. And what happened to them, I don't know. I just know the American treatment of these uh, people who really were part of our military is shameful. And this in a country where the military is practically worshiped for better or worse. And, and have you found like the process, like if it's, if somebody comes to you and are they typically, will you get a call from, let's say a country like Iraq or from Syria or, or, or they've arrived and maybe they're at, at, at a border uh, situation and they're not allowed entry. How, how do, how do people connect with you and, and, and what is the, the process that they, they need to follow and how long does it take? to get official refuge? Well, it, it's, it varies uh, widely. If they're not allowed into the country, it's very hard for them to find a lawyer. There are people I was alerted to who were at some of the immigration jails. I remember a young Burmese man was in a jail in New Jersey at the same time as a, a uh, middle-aged, on the old side of middle-aged woman from, um, from Zaire, uh, now in the Congo again. Um, and I was told about them, so I knew to go and ask for them, and I was allowed to speak with them, but many people don't, they, they aren't able to connect with anybody. Now there are more lists that are given to people. Sometimes there are free lawyers or places to call when they come to these jails. Sometimes they're provided with that sort of information, but it's still hard because it can take years to pursue one of these cases. Even when people are, are in immigration jail, they call it detention because that sounds nicer, but it's really a jail. It can take years, it can be very expensive. I actually liked cases where people couldn't pay me because among other things, I didn't have to keep track of time. I just had to do the case. So it was well, not getting paid anyway. So, um, so I would just put into it the time and attention that it needed. But it's hard for them to find you. The way you are, you get found by other people is through connections. One of the reasons I would have runs of clients from Mauritania or Iran or Liberia uh, or Romania is that they people would tell someone else, oh, I found this lawyer and he'll help you and he won't cheat you. I've helped people who've been cheated by other lawyers. It's very easy to cheat someone who doesn't know the language, doesn't know the system. And you speak the language and you pretend that you're the kind of insider that my clients think that I am. And, and you cheat them. You take money for something that can't be done. Very often, the best thing I've done for people is to say, you don't have any hope of anything. Not necessarily about asylum, but of getting status here anyway. So the best thing you can do is, if you want to stay here, you just got to keep your head down and hope there's a, a change in the law. But if someone tells you they can get you a green card or some other kind of status here, don't believe them because it's not possible. You have so, to- So they're aware. They're effectively informed of where the guardrails are and, and how not to be exploited. Yeah, that's what I try to do because it's very easy to say, oh, I can fix that. I had a, a, a Bolivian friend once who, he was a house painter 
and he painted the bathroom for someone. And she said, I don't want to pay you for the bathroom. Let me fix your immigration situation. And she applied for asylum for him with phony papers, never told him that there was a hearing. He didn't show up for the hearing. And the immigration police came to arrest him, which they don't usually, but for some reason he was easy pickings, maybe because he owned a house in New Jersey and had a truck with his, not with a magic marker sign on the side, but a fancy truck for his business. And he employed five people and he was easy to find, paid all his taxes and they put him in immigration jail, wouldn't let him out to sell his house or his truck. I think his sister took care of it later and deported him. So there's that kind of person is out there. You probably get scam calls on your cell phone too. Yeah. Right. People offering you things, threatening things. And it's very easy to do that to people who are uh, a bit at sea when they're here. They don't, they don't know the language of the system and they'll believe what someone who looks responsible tells them. And, and, and in Yiddish, the term mensch, to find a mensch, a real mensch is very difficult to find the person that is going to properly guide in the right manner and give the right advice is, is, is a challenge. I admire Yiddish. That was the first language of my grandparents. Okay. So. Well, because I grew up with, uh, uh, again, the New York uh, lore and uh, many of the stories had Yiddish uh, punchlines uh, yeah. punch and, and so, so I'm, I'm versed to a little degree. And now one broader picture, just to bring it much bigger, according to the United Nations, at the moment, there's 90 million refugees in the world today and internally displaced people. In the next uh, nine years, it's going to get up to 300 million people. And so the, whether it's wars, whether it's climate change, the, the, the issues are intensifying. So, uh, and, and the other problems, the existential threats being faced is, as you mentioned, um, right-wing politicians uh, like the former president that are using race and immigration and refugees and religious minorities as scapegoats to mobilize a base, to demonize the other, to get power as previous president. So because now the, the, the genie is out of the bottle, the white supremacist right-wing uh, ideology is becoming mainstream in, in government. So likely um, Western governments are gonna uh, reduce the amount of refugees that, that they'll take in, but the refugee crisis will continue to grow. Um, what are your thoughts? What are, what are possible uh, strategies or some hope to, 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 and solutions you may have thought of over the years that, that can meaningfully help these people and maybe help change policy to, to be more accepting of refugees? Well, my longstanding hope, uh, as you know, from the Rights for Human Rights, it's to change people's hearts and minds. And if people are welcoming and inclined to be kind to the stranger, then we wouldn't have a problem. I don't think that we're going to get there fast enough to be able to beat the, the upheavals from climate change and from the rightward turn of politics all over. I mean, authoritarianism, it isn't always right-wing. I don't know if you could call what happens in China now right-wing, perhaps you could, um, but it's authoritarian. And it's bad. Uh, we in North America, or at least in your part of it and my part of it, are blessed that we have plenty of water and we have lots of room. One thing that you see crossing the United States, which is smaller than Canada and has 10 times the population, 
is still how empty it is. Even New Jersey, the most densely populated state, which is one of the 39 I've biked all the way through, is almost empty. We have lots and lots of room, but other places are not so fortunate. We also have a population bomb here uh, that the population is declining, except for immigration. And that's gonna have serious economic and social consequences in the future. You may have seen that China recently said they'll now allow three children per couple. They used to discourage more than one child and sometimes you weren't allowed to have any. They encouraged delay in marriage, et cetera. But they're facing a crash of population that they won't be able to support their increasingly aged population. Um, so there's going to be pushback in this country a little bit, I think, against the, the closing of the doors. But there's that visceral hatred, that id that has been unleashed by politics lately that I think language is very important. And when people weren't able to say things maybe that were in their heart of hearts, they didn't act on those things either. I think if you're allowed hate speech or you're allowed to demonize or talk about the other, then it makes your, your uh, activities conform to that. And, uh, and I worry about the future. I, I'm hoping that if we can turn around our society here with better infrastructure and a better safety net that could make it even more desirable for refugees to come here than now, um, that, that people will feel more comfortable, more secure, more prosperous. And when you have a full belly and you have a decent house and your kids are in a good school and your streets are safe, you may not want the stranger to come to upset that, but you may also feel like I am comfortable enough to be able to extend a hand. That's the point of view that I have had. My family, my wife so generously and my kids happily went along too. We had people living with us, staying with us sometimes for hours, sometimes for weeks from, from Lebanon, Syria, Iran, uh, Somalia, Mauritania, Congo, um, Belarus, all kinds of places. But we, we had room. I felt safe with them. People said, you got these people out of jail and you let them in your house. I said, they're not criminals and I've helped them. Why would they hurt me? Why would they hurt my family? And, we're, and, and no, one ever, no one ever did anything bad who came. And they learned from the experience, like you know, it's something that I've also told people, I'm getting off at a bit on a tangent, but how, how much people want to adapt. You hear sometimes, oh, they don't want to assimilate. Well, they want to keep their own culture and religion and maybe some of their native dress and that's all fine. But I, I had a client from Somalia once, I'd gotten him out of jail. He came to my house to stay. I gave him the usual assurances. You're free to come and go. This is not a prison. You can walk outside. You can. And I, he was Muslim. I told him we have no pork here. You have, you know, food is all halal. Kosher is even stricter than halal actually. And I said, you're fine here. And then I made dinner. And he ate dinner and then I was doing the dishes because I'm the cook and the dishwasher. My wife made the money. And he said to me, why are you doing women's work? And I said, oh, well, in America, I said, there's no women's work. There's no men's work. There's just work. He said, okay. The next morning after breakfast, he helped me with the dishes. He wanted to be part of the society. And if you get people comfortable as I was to let them in, and you realize that they're gonna be your good neighbor. 
maybe maybe we'll get we'll get to the point where it won't just be Norwegian fashion models who will get a stamp of approval from the people on high, but maybe people who want to pick our strawberries and people who want to be in our hospitals and people who just want to have a life doing something and put their kids in school and we all get along. It sounds sappy, can't we just all get along? But I, I think we can if we feel comfortable and safe enough. And, and to welcome them, the, the folks in need in your home from so many backgrounds. And you mentioned so many countries that you had people come from. Could you talk about commonalities that as diverse their colors, their backgrounds, their, 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 their cultures, but what were the commonalities that you felt in all the people that you, you, you given, given your own personal asylum from your own home, but in the work that you've done helping people, what were the commonalities and, and the heart that you found in everybody? They all love their families or want to have a family. They all want to work and feel useful. They want to be safe. They, some needed refuge from nightmares. I've had nightmares about stories my clients have told me. Some of the worst were from Liberia, but there were horrible things from other places. Those were maybe the most colorful in, in a terrible way. Um, they, they, and they, they wanna contribute. They wanna be a part of something and feel good and, they, and they're grateful. They're grateful. One of my Syrian clients frequently says, this is the most wonderful place. I can't, uh, I can't believe that I'm here and that it's okay and my kids are safe. And, they're, they're better Americans than the Americans. They're just really grateful. They have this, this visceral feeling of gratitude. And I don't want people to feel grateful to me or to the country, not exactly. You know, you want them to feel like they can be part of it and belong, not that they carry a burden, that they have to do something somehow to make up for it. But, you know, better that than being negative about it. They just, they want to they want a good life and they want to make life good for people around them. And, and I think that's a common human, a common human instinct or tendency. There's people who are just rotten, they, you know, who are just irredeemably rotten. But I think they're a very small minority. And I also worry about the mob instinct, the herd instinct, that if you get a lot of good people together and you get one bad person to do something, then they'll join in, you know, like all the wolves attacking the, the injured wolf or something like that. But I think for the most part, if you get people in small groups or one at a time and talk to them and connect with them, you can set them on a path toward feeling benign and safe. I think I may have had some small influence on some of my clients who, who saw me as an example of what an American could be, of what a Jew could be, because I had some clients who said, oh, you know, we met 10 years ago in my country, I would have cut your throat. But they, because they, they had been fed lies about who we were, Americans or Jews or Westerners. You know, I, I had a number of clients who were afraid at first because I don't know which part of my background scared them or just that I was a person they, they didn't know. Um, one guy uh, from from uh, Iraq asked me, what, what are you doing this for? What is it, what are you, what's, what's in it for you? There's a guy from China who said, why are, you, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? Because nobody ever would help him unless there was something to be gained for the other person. Of course, personal satisfaction is what I gain from it, which means I don't do it for their good as much as I do it for mine. But it wasn't anything tangible I wanted from them. 
And I had to convince them, like the Chinese gentleman, it was, uh, it was near the time of Hanukkah, it was in the winter. And he said, what are you doing this? He was so suspicious. And I, uh, I happened to have some chocolate Hanukkah gelt, the candies for my kids in my pocket, not a my jacket pocket, because in your pocket pocket, it's gonna melt. So I said, oh, it's um, my religion makes me do this, which between you and me and the listeners, is a little bit part of it, but it's, I would think I would do this anyway. Um, I said, here, here, I have to give you this candy. And I, I had some subway tokens back when they didn't have the electronic cards. I said, here's some subway tokens. I have to give you this too, it's my religion. I have to do these things for you. He didn't know anything about religion. Uh, he was an a-religious, purely secular Chinese guy, but we heard that, oh, oh, then it made sense to him. I found out years later that he never, ate the chocolates or used the subway tokens. He kept them as sort of a talisman. Wow. As a, as a symbol. And, and, and you brought up something powerful because when people are not used to a sincere intention and good for the sake of good, and they're always seeing if somebody's helping me, what is, what's their ankle? What's their, what's their agenda? And, and I think you being the exception, hopefully it becomes the rule, but it, it, it does seem that it is rare. As you said, a lot of refugees get exploited. And I want to take the discussion to a bigger existential issue. And as you worked on the, the hearts and minds one-on-one, uh, -on -one, however, uh, the mob has been mobilized online and, and right-wing and extremist uh, groups have found tribes. So in, initially in the 80s, 90s, to meet people with um, anti-immigrant, uh, having racist views, it was limited to your locality, but now uh, people can find a tribe of, of very vicious, evil, um, oppressive uh, thought processes and ideologies uh, inciting to violence. Uh, in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions across North America, the Western world, around the world. So what we're facing is disinformation. We're facing a mob that is now force multiplied. And so now the, the forces of good to have the other narrative to reach those bigger audiences online um, in, in a similar way. And, and part of the vision of this podcast was uh, one is to meet uh, a few people. We right now we have a, on average five thousand. Sometimes we get up to ten thousand viewers. But to be able to share this story and to create tribes of good that of people like yourselves and ourselves trying to meaningfully help people in need. Um, that at the moment it seems like we're in an ocean of hate, uh, and and to turn the tide in this bigger way, which now which never existed. Uh, before this last 20 years is this this virtual world is becoming the real world so uh, please offer your thoughts on that and how we can hopefully address it I know there's no easy answers in this I wish I had an answer I don't know I I remember reading uh, an essay by Gandhi I think written in the 1930s about how awful the postal system was because you could now send hate and venom to people for a penny and then he added at the end, of course, you could also send your thanks on a postcard for a penny too. Uh, I don't know, sometimes people talk about bringing a gun to a knife fight or that some, some people wanna be fair even to their opponents and then others don't care about being fair. 
They just care about crushing them. I, I hear this uh, expression, uh, when they go low, we go high. But sometimes when you go high, you, you crash again. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to deal with it. I, I see there's a poison. I see that, that uh, particularly the last four or five years, the, the use of social media has people get canceled and erased and whatever else they call it if they make some offhand remark or something silly. You know, uh, they are haunted by it. Their careers are destroyed. You have um, lies spread because some politicians said it. So some of these platforms say, well, then it's a matter of public interest and they empower the most evil, evil things. And then you have uh, governments that go the other direction and they silence by shutting off social media access to people who aren't lying and who are trying to organize for good. I don't know, I, I feel sometimes that I have lived through a golden age. I was just young enough to avoid the Vietnam draft. And we had a lot of wars since then, but they didn't affect me directly. And I felt that when, when I was young, there still were separate drinking fountains in the American South and overt racism everywhere. Um, and it gradually got better. I felt that that things were with fits and starts again with that zigzag line, the trend was upward. And now I worry for my children and I must confess, even though I look like I'm only 35, I have grand, could have grandchildren at 35, I'm not 35. I have little grandchildren now too, two little sweetie pies. And I worry about the future for them um, because I, I things go in cycles. I don't believe in some of the the historical cycle theories that people promote, but things do get better and then they do get worse. The refugee protections that we now have in the Western world came into being with the uh, protocols in 1951 and the US 29 years later got around to passing the Refugee Act of 1980. But this was all in response to what happened in World War II with the murder of six million Jews and six million other people because they were gay, because they were Slavic, because they were, you know, different colored skin, whatever, uh, because they were communists. All kinds of people got murdered for that. And then you had Mao supposedly was responsible for 45 million deaths and Stalin for 30 million deaths, both of them way outstripping what Hitler did. But that was, that toned down and we had refugee protocols and, and the, uh, the country's attitude was different. The West was more accepting. And now that generation is dying off. People who really remember World War II are almost all gone. And we haven't learned the lessons because the same nonsense is coming up again. The same demonization that you mentioned, the same hatreds, and often directed against Jews but depending on what continent you're on against people of different colors or backgrounds, the Uyghurs in China, so far as I know, have been completely inoffensive. Other, you know, every group has criminals or whatever, but just inoffensive and not at all a threat to the, the Chinese state, and yet they're different. So what Stalin has supposedly said, um, something about dead man, no problem. Yeah, and, and millions of people's a statistic. Yes, people, that is a statistic. 
Right, one death is a tragedy. And then yeah. This kind of thing and this attitude, well, we don't know or understand them. They might do something bad to us in the future, so let's wipe them out now. That yeah. kind of attitude, and people don't remember what happened. Susan Sontag became a friend. I don't ordinarily name drop. I've had a few famous clients, but she wasn't really a client. She had a friend from Bosnia who needed help, and I was able to help him, and I got to know her. I thought she was a wonderful woman, uh, you know, America's intellectual and she once said that never again, which is a slogan you hear Jewish people say, never again means that never again will Germans and their allies kill Jews in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. And she, she knew we hadn't learned and it's gonna happen again. It has and it did and it does and it will. And, and history rhymes and, and, and in World War II, um, to step up and 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 call it for what it is and a lot of people are saying i'm just doing my job or i i i'm going along to get along and and to take the courageous approach to say uh to tell the truth and to tell the real stories um is an act of courage when when the tide is shifting in in, in a dark way so i want to say uh for a true mensch that uh, meeting you uh, is is an honor for us because our goals are the same to share the stories so so people can understand the multifaceted aspect of it it's not just black and white there's so many layers and we need people like yourselves to work together for the greater good so it was an honor and a privilege to have you join us and we will be uh, promoting this through our various uh, uh, social media through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, and, and TikTok. Uh, that's a new uh, uh, social media platform that I'm still trying to figure out, but uh, but we want to get the message out to every level. And and your story is an inspiring one for, for me personally, and I think for, for others as well. And as you said, if one person can take it on and, and take it to uh, um, an extent that that is even bigger than, than we're what work you brought to this stage, then, then one heart, one mind changed. Uh, it, it is a blessed work. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Life is stories and yep. you really tell some stories. So it was, it was great to be with you and have that opportunity. Absolutely. And when the pandemic eases up and we're able to travel, New York is always on my list to 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 visit as uh, I feel like it's part of the family because of my childhood uh, uh, love for, for the city because of um, and Spider yeah, Spider-Man. Exactly. And uh, and uh, just so you know, my cross country bike, which is actually an English made recumbent tricycle, has been waiting for me in Seattle at my brother's house where I left it. In March of 2019, I was supposed to bike to Provo, Utah last year. And then again, this year in the spring still hasn't happened, but I'm coming back to Seattle to continue the ride from there. And uh, it's not so far from you. I'll let you know when I'm coming. And if you wanna ride along with me, if we're exchanging populations anymore, post pandemic, I would love to have a companion. 
Absolutely, would love to. And I was just going to ask that if you you took any 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 uh, any people to to kind of ride with you, and I'd love to ride with you. I've never done rides like that. I've done it in a controlled setting here in Vancouver, where we have safety bike lanes and all that. And so this would be uh, something. Uh, and watching your uh, just reading off the list, you went to Mexico, California, Nashville, the Great Lakes, New England beautiful, beautiful scenery, very diverse. And I, I'd love to do something similar. You won't want to go home. It's hypnotic, but it is wild out there. Yeah. It's wild out there. I mean, the diesel trucks roaring past you. So far, they've all roared past. That's <laughs> what you want them to go past you, not yeah. over. Yeah. Well, oh. it, 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 I'm going to take you up on it and looking forward to it. 